He's a star, and I know that in his expansive loving heart, he will forgive me for blackmailing him. So <laughs> let's just have a moment of prayer now as Colin comes to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that there is warmth even on a cold morning. And we pray that you will help Colin now. We pray that something of the warmth of that love will come through what he's saying to us. Give him clarity, Lord. And we pray that you will take this word and use it as a seed in our hearts that will grow and produce fruit that we perhaps cannot yet imagine. We pray in your name. Amen. Getting old, I have to take my glasses off to read. Can you hear me? Okay, good morning. That's great. Okay. As uh, August moves into September and we come to the end of uh, some holidays, uh, I hope you had a good one. I actually went to Wales. I spent nearly 18 days, I think, with my brother and his family. And it rained for nearly all of that time. I think we had three days of sun. And at least two of those days, it had some showers in it. So I had a lot of time to sit and think. And one of the things I thought about was the fact that we are calling a new minister. And I thought to myself, what is important to me in a new minister? What do I actually want to see in a new minister? And I had to admit that what's important to me, I can't tell from somebody preaching. And I thought to myself, this is a really precarious way of choosing a minister. So I thought, there's got to be a better way to choose a minister than this. So I thought, I'd have a look in the Bible. And so I thought, how do people choose leaders in the Bible? And I started to flick through and I looked through it. And I think, let's leave the Old Testament aside, because I don't think I'd want to choose any leader of my church the way they did in the Old Testament. So I thought, let's look at the New Testament. Can we learn anything from that? So what did the first time they had to choose someone? I know. When Jesus Iscariot hung himself, the disciples thought, well, we need to choose somebody to fit in his place. So what did they do? They set up some criteria, then they drew lots. They didn't even vote. And I thought, oh, right, I'm not sure I want to do that. I don't think I want to draw lots. And I thought, right, let's go a little further on into the New Testament. And as the church began to grow and it began to have problems because of its growth, it decided it needed some leaders, some deacons deacons or elders or whatever you want to call them. And so they thought, right, we need to choose them to get this thing moving smoothly. So again, they set out some criteria, and off they went, and they were told, go and choose the leaders from this criteria. And they chose seven. We don't know how beyond the criteria they chose the seven. Did only seven people match that criteria? I doubt it. But somehow or another, they chose seven from all that criteria. And we don't know how they did it. And so I came to the conclusion that basically, the process that we used is not that important. What is important is trusting that God can make his will known in that process. And so I thought, well, there's quite a lot I don't have control over in this process. I have to trust that to God. But there is something I do have control over in this whole process of choosing a new minister. And that is me. How I live my discipleship. How I want to live my discipleship. What's important to me as a disciple? What's important to me as a Christian? That forms part of this community here.
And so this morning, I thought maybe we could take a look at what's important to each one of us in our discipleship. And I think this is a very important uh, step to take because I think it's part of the process that Ken started before he retired. Before he retired, if you remember, he did a talk on the history of Fitzroy. He did a talk on our past ministers. And it was fascinating to see how the characteristics of their ministry has left a legacy for us here in Fitzroy. And how it fits in with a lot of the ministry and ethos of Fitzroy today. And he started that process of us thinking about who we are and where we're at. And in the last uh, few weeks, we've actually been looking at what it means to be a community in Christ. Today, I want to narrow that down. What does it mean to be an individual in that community? Who are you in that community? So I want to ask some questions to reflect on that. Now, these questions are designed, hopefully, for you to reflect on it, okay? They're not designed to be accusative or threatening in, in any way. They're meant to help a process, okay? And as I say you, I mean you, singular, when I ask the question, not usens, okay? And because it's really awkward to keep on saying you and me, when I say you, I include myself okay, in the questions. So that's what I'd like to do this morning. So let's see how we get on with that. You've got uh, in your order of service, there's quite a bit of a blank space. You might want to write down some of your answers. You might want to write down some of the questions. You might come up with some questions of your own. Okay, but I would encourage you maybe to note some things down. Okay. If I was to ask you, and to answer pretty quickly, what would be the three most important things to you, three most important aspects of your Christian discipleship, what would they be? You might think of lords. I'm just asking you to think of three. What would they be? Take a little time. Don't take too long. Quite often, the quickest answer is the one that's going to tell you more about yourself than anything. If you had to pick three important things about your discipleship, what would they be? I'll tell you what mine were, okay, as an exercise in sharing. Love, justice, and presence. And I had to go to four because I just couldn't leave this fourth one out. And that's paradox. Yeah, it sounds strange. I'm not sure if I need to talk to a shrink or a theologian. But love, justice, presence, and paradox were the three important important things for me. But thankfully, we're not going to be expounding on what I think is important. I think we've got a much better example of Christian discipleship to look at, and that's the Apostle Paul. And that's why we read that passage that we read. So maybe you'd like to keep that passage open with you as well. Now, I'll explain a little bit about the situation which Paul is writing when he writes to Second Corinthians or to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church was a divided church. And someone, maybe a group or one person inside that church, had made it their business to accuse Paul of all sorts of different things, to call into question his integrity, his character, and therefore his message. And they really stirred it up in the, in the Corinthian community. Okay? And so Paul is right in into that situation. I hasten to add, I do not think there's any comparison between the Corinthian church and Fitzroy. That's not what, where I'm going. Okay? But what I do want to look at is when Paul had to speak into that situation where he was finding opposition and had to be as clear as he possibly could, he powered it right down to what was basic and core for him in his own Christian discipleship. And that was what God had done in Christ and therefore how Paul should live. 
So that's why I want to look at this passage. Paul has piled it down to what's important for him. And what I'd like to do is to look at that and ask some questions about it to try and use that as a stock-taking tool for ourselves. Okay? That's, that's the idea. Anyway. I won't read um, the passage again. Okay? But this is a famous passage. It's very famous for the verses, the love of Christ compels me, and it's famous for the idea of being a new creation. Okay? And when Paul spoke about this being a new creation us being a new creation, what God had done in Christ had made something so new, so different, so strange that it broke all human understanding. He said we can no longer look at this after the flesh. Okay, we can't use the human normal past characteristics for defining or categorizing people. And this brings to mind what we've looked at in Galatians, basically. There is no male, no female, no slave, no free. Okay, we are a new creation. There's something there. Paul never actually went on to explore all the implications of that, and neither has the church ever done that. After 2,000 years, it is a bit time we began to move on that, but we're not actually going to look at that this morning, okay? We're not going to look at this new creation aspect, because how do you evaluate that? You either are a new creation or you're not. What we are going to look at is how do you live out your new creation? Yeah, that's what we're going to try and look at this morning. So the three areas that I want to look at through Paul is love, reconciliation, and ambassadorship, being an ambassador or being presence, okay? So let's look at um, Paul and love. As I mentioned, Paul had been accused of all sorts of different things, some very strange behavior by the look of it, and we're not exactly sure of all the different things he was accused of. And Paul's uh, answer to them is, well, whether I look like I'm in my right mind or I look like I'm mad, whatever I have done is because of the love of Christ. Whatever I have done is because of the love of Christ. And he says, the love of Christ has compelled me. And maybe that's why he looked at, on occasions, he acted like a madman. The, the term compel actually comes from the Greek to hold in one's grip. Paul was gripped by God's love. It forced him, it compelled him to do things and to be and to live in a certain way. Okay? And what I'd like to ask ourselves this morning is our experience of God's love, what has it compelled us to do? Okay? What has your singular experience of God's love compelled you to do? How has it gripped you? Quite often, I found in the churches that we polarize love. If we read in the Old Testament and we listen to what God says about Israel and how he speaks about Israel, he speaks as a man, very human terms, completely besotted and in love. He's incredibly passionate. There's yearning. There's longing. And when that love is spurned, boy, does he let you know about it. And he speaks in no uncertain terms. And it's sometimes even too painful to read. You've seen into the heart of a man who is loved and spurned. It's very difficult. There is passion, there is yearning. And quite often in the church, we'll have this passionate and this yearning side, and then someone will come in and say, yeah, but it's not all pure emotion, you know. It's not all this lovey-dovey emotional stuff. You know, love is an act of the will. It is a decision. It is the will to love. You know, it's not all pure emotion. And quite often I've actually found this in Latin America and in the churches. It all looks like it's pure froth and emotion and love. And you, you'll get a Western missionary coming in and saying, well, it's not all like that, you know. You have to be, you know, there is a decision to love. And they, and they polarize it. 
And yet I think to have one without the other is not love. To have one without the other, at best, is a poor imitation. At worst, is a deception and a very cruel deception. If we look at in the Old Testament and the picture it paints of God being in love, you have this amazing passion, longing and yearning. And you have the decision. There's times when, because of his passion, he's ready and willing to destroy the object of his love. But then he says, no. And God, I can't do it. My heart's turned over within me, Isaiah, Hosea. And then he says, I have chosen to love Israel. I made a promise. I will act on that. So you get both. Okay? So our experience of God's love, this longing and yearning, we should experience that longing and yearning, that passion and that desire as well, as well as that will to love. Now, my question to you this morning is when you think about your experience of God's love, what do you yearn for? What are you passionate about? Where does your yearning and longing go? Perhaps you have a longing and a desire and a yearning and a love for Asia, for India, for Europe, for Africa, for South America, or maybe your neighbor, your workmate, the marginalized, the poor, the fatherless, the homeless, the stranger in our land, people caught up in cults, people who are so caught up in their own mental illness that they become trapped to themselves. Where does your love go? Maybe your experience of God's love in you drives you to your knees in prayer so that your love is poured out in prayer and service for others. Where is your experience of God's love channeled in your life? It's there. Where is it going? You with me? You understand that? What has God made you passionate about? Where is that love going? Let's move on. We're going to look very quickly at this whole thing about reconciliation. Paul states that God, in Christ, reconciled us and the world to himself. And because Paul experienced that reconciliation, he was called to a ministry of reconciliation and given the word of reconciliation to take to others. He experienced reconciliation and therefore was given the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, There's, There seems to be an idea present here, which Paul uses elsewhere in Corinthians, and that idea is what you experience of God, you can become for others. Okay, Not you automatically will be. We are human beings. There's too much involved there. But what you experience of God, you can become for others. In the beginning of um, 2 Corinthians 1, Uh, verse 4, it says that that God has comforted us and that we may comfort others with the same comfort that God has comforted us with. So what I experience of God, I can become for others. Okay? Are you with me? You follow that kind of principle. There's this idea of a flow. It comes from God to me to you. And it comes from God to you to me. So what I experience of God, I can become for others. So the obvious question is, what has your experience of God made you for others? What has your experience of God made you for others? 
who, as your experience of God, made you into? Big questions. Worth looking at. Okay? Your experience of God can make you into something for others. If you've been comforted with a great love and comfort from God, you can step in and comfort others as though God was comforting them. If you have experienced, and you obviously have, (laughs) reconciliation with God, you can take the ministry of reconciliation and that word of reconciliation to others. But those are not the only two experiences we have of God. There's all sorts of experiences that we can have of God. And there's all sorts of ministries, gifts, experiences, whatever you want to call them, we can become or we can do on behalf of God to others because of our experience of God. And you see that in other passages, especially in Paul. Paul seems to take that quite a bit. Now, this whole idea of flow brings me, actually, to the understanding of ambassador, believe it or not. Because this idea of flow, that it comes from God to me, from me to you, and my experience of God can become your experience of God, brings us into this whole understanding of ambassadorship. Because Paul basically states that because he experienced reconciliation... And because God called him to a ministry of reconciliation, to take the word of reconciliation to others, he was made an ambassador to be able to speak on behalf of God and to be as though God were present there. Now, I'm sure we've all heard sermons about ambassadors and ambassadorship and what it means, so we really don't need to go into it an awful lot. But there seems to be two key elements about the whole thing about being an ambassador. One is presence. In fact, in the representation of another, the presence of God in your life. And the other is to be able to speak with power, authority, grace, and mercy, just as though God were. And to act with power, authority, grace, and mercy, as though God were acting in that situation. So we have love, we have reconciliation, and what my experience of God is, I can become for others, and in doing so, bring the presence of God into that situation as an ambassador. So my question here to you is, how are you present with others? How are you present to others in such a way that God is also present? How have you experienced that? Where have you experienced that? Can you experience that daily? Should you experience that daily? We've all the times, I'm sure, when you've met up with Christian friends and you've sat and you've chatted and you've talked and you've listened and you've gone away and you suddenly thought, I just met with God. I was meeting with so-and-so, but I just met with God. Why? God's presence in that person, God's presence in you, made it so obvious that God was present. That person became an ambassador of God to you and you to them. How do we do that on a regular basis? How do you do that on a regular basis? This isn't meant to be a one-off, I don't think. When Paul speaks this way, this isn't a one-off. This is a lifestyle that Paul has. How is that lifestyle reflected for you? Now, why do I think these questions are important? Why do I think we need to ask ourselves these questions? Well, the answer is simple. Each one of us forms part of the community here in Fitzroy and forms part of the ethos of this community, gives it its character, gives it its nature. 
makes it what it is. So your answers to those questions are important. But beyond that, it's important you share those answers with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Keeping them to yourself is no good. (laughs) The next step is share those answers. So I'm inviting you and asking you, when you go home today and you sit around the table, sit down, share what your answers were. Maybe you'll come up with more questions even. Share what those questions are. Share where you are at at this moment with your family. Invite friends over. Do the same. In the, in the coming weeks, do the same. Call someone up, ring them up, say, let's go for a coffee. Let's sit down and say where we are at and share. And we'll get a better and a deeper understanding of what Fitzroy means and what Fitzroy is as a community. We have heard in the past of what community in Christ is meant to be or what it should like, look like or what it could look like. Your answers to these questions will tell you what Fitzroy is really like. Not what it could be like, not what it should be like, but what it is like. And that's a brilliant place to be. That's a wonderful place to be. Especially when we're thinking about bringing and calling a new minister. Because as I was thinking about this, it suddenly occurred to me that the main question is not who is God calling to Fitzroy? Who is the new minister God is calling to Fitzroy? But to whom is God calling a new minister? What are we like in Fitzroy? I would encourage you to spend some time thinking about those questions for yourself. You have answers, they're your answers. And then take time to share them with others and encounter God in that moment of sharing. And then we can continue to pray for our new minister and we'll have a better understanding of to whom our new minister is coming. Right, see if I can remember. Okay, let me start off with God's love. Your experience of God's love, God's love, has given you a yearning, a passion, a desire for what? For whom? To be like what? Your experience of God's love, what does it compel you to do? What has it compelled you to do? Where is it leading? Where is it taking you? When we think about the whole area of reconciliation, Maybe when Paul was talking about ministry of reconciliation, maybe he was talking about himself and the people around him, but I doubt it very much. Everyone who has experienced reconciliation is given the word of reconciliation to take to others. Where and how are we doing that? Where do I bring reconciliation? In my daily life, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my work, in this world, in Northern Ireland. Then beyond that is what has my experience of God led me to be? What has my experience of God made me into for someone else? And then when we look at ambassadorship, how do I bring the presence of God with me? How is it manifest in my life? And I think when we look at ambassadorship, there are those four words basically that I think are key, presence, power, authority, and also the mercy and graciousness, because the ambassador could be merciful and gracious like the leader, or strong and authoritative as well. All those areas reflect God's characteristic, God's characters, and that's the kind of character we should reflect if we are to be an ambassador. Love and mercy, power and authority, and presence.